Welcome back to another episode of the We Live to Build podcast. My guest today is Lindsay Allard, the co-founder and CEO of Playbook UX. Playbook UX allows you to conduct video-based user testing and interviews with your target audience. I haven't used it personally, but I've seen it, and it looks really cool. Lindsay's background is in psychology like mine, so the fact that she went into product and the fact that she discovered there were problems in her industry and then went on to found a company that would allow her to solve those problems related to product and UX research tells you that she not only understands what she's built, but she's built it with a purpose. And that's why I brought her on to talk about UX research. We talked about things like, how do you know that the questions you're asking aren't biased? And how do you know that the feedback you're getting is good? And how do you manage that feedback? How do you manage those interviews? How do you collate the data? How do you clean it if necessary? And how do you use it? And a lot more. So I hope you enjoy this episode and let's get to it. Welcome to We Live to Build. My name is Sean Weisbrot, and I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and advisor based in Asia for over 12 years. Join us every week to fast-track your personal growth so you can meet the ever-increasing demands of the company or companies you are passionately building. Time waits for no one, so let's get started now. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me, Lindsay. I appreciate it. And UX research is something that my company is getting close to doing in the next few months. So this is a very relevant episode for me. Hopefully I can learn something from it. And hopefully the questions I ask will help the audience by the end of this episode get a better sense for how they can handle their own UX research as well. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to to get started and uh, talk about UX, my favorite subject. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your backstory so they know why you're the right person to talk about this topic. So I started um, my career in sales and was, you know, out of college, not really sure what to do and cut some advice that said, if you can sell something to someone, then that's a good start in business and thought, all right, that sounds good. So did that for a bit and then uh, yeah, kind of transitioned to marketing and then into product management. So kind of tried out different career fields. Product management is really what I enjoyed a lot. And as a, working at startups in product management, we did not have the resources to hire UX research teams. Uh, so I was doing a lot of that by default. Kind of time strapped and realized, wow, this is really exciting. Love talking to users, love getting user feedback. But the logistics and the process of doing that is really time consuming and kind of takes away from the actual insights. Um, you know, everything from recruiting people to conducting the research to analyzing qualitative research can be really, really time consuming. So that's where we kind of landed. My co-founder also was a product manager as well. 
but she worked at a big corporation and felt the same challenges when it came to actually doing the research. So that's where we started Playbook UX. And um, our mission is to really help take the logistics out of the research. Uh, so researchers, product managers, founders, marketers, anyone who wants to get user feedback can really focus on the, the insights. What kind of questions are you asking people? Unbiased questions, really getting deep insights and understanding what do people actually think? What do they feel? And then improving your product, your website, your marketing copy, whatever it is, rather than all the logistics that kind of go into it. So um, that's where we found a Playbook UX. When you're thinking about UX research, are you developing the user personas or does the marketing team provide you the user personas? How do you figure out who you should be talking to? User personas is one way to do it. I think it depends a bit on the stage of your company. So um, you know, big organizations a lot of times already have those personas. The marketing team's done that. If you're a strong startup, you might not have a user base. You might just have a hypothesis. Like we think that we're going to be selling this product to uh, people who install HVAC units, whatever that demographic is that you're looking for and take that and then interview people who sell, uh, install HVAC units and see, would they actually use this? Would they actually buy it? Uh, the answer might be no. And then you move on to, okay, we think that might be interesting to this person. So it's really about one, just identifying who is your user base? So for example, when we first started out at Playbook UX, we thought our hypothesis was we were going to sell to product managers. But then we really started interviewing UX researchers, seeing a lot of them using our platform. And we're like, oh, no, no, no. These are the people who spend way more time dealing with these issues. Let's you know go for them. It's an evolution, right? It's not like, a, oh, we know these product groups and they always stay the same. It continues to evolve. Uh, as you build new features that are interesting to people, uh, you might say, hey, this user group is really interested in this product. Let's dive more into that. Um, and that's for any product, any service, any blog that you write, you know, all of a sudden you might realize people in this demographic are really interested in what we're doing. Let's like figure out why they're interested in it. I think it's something that it should always be evolving. It's not like you just said it once and forget it. Um, you should always trying to understand what that demographic is that is interested in your product or who you think you can get in front of. So should you figure out why people are interested before figuring out what questions to ask? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it depends on what, where your stage are. So if you're at a stage where you're like, we don't really know who's interested, let's figure that out. You might want to have a few hypotheses. Let's see. We have a group of marketers might be interested in our product. HR managers might be interested in our product. So let's interview you know, those three different segments and we'll ask them really open-ended questions. Things like, what's your day-to-day -day look like? What are some of the biggest challenges as you have? What are some of the things that frustrate you about your job or something to those lines? And then you can uncover, okay, it seems like, yeah, HR managers have this challenge, but it's not really at the forefront of their day. So you're kind of asking them questions where um, you're not leading anything. You're not like, hey, here's a product. Do you like it? Because then when you ask that question, it leads people to say, yeah, okay, they don't want to hurt your feelings, right? They don't want to say, uh, no, I hate it. So you want to understand, like, is this actually a problem they're having? Is this something that is challenging? I always recommend starting starting with those kind of concepts interviews first before you even dive into showing them anything. Of course, if you've done those concept interviews, then that's where you want to get into usability, user feedback, things like that when you're actually showing them assets, prototypes, websites, whatnot. So by asking open-ended questions, is that enough to de-bias your questions or do you have to go beyond just saying open-ended questions are okay to really de-bias them? No, so much goes into de-biasing questions. I think it's really hard to not jump in for someone. I think that's a really big skill. We can't underestimate user researchers are taught how to do this. You know, if someone's kind of struggling with something, you kind of natural human instinct is to jump in and kind of say something or lead them somewhere. I think also as a founder, it's hard to hear 
people say, oh, no, 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 I don't, you know, I'm not interested in this. So I always recommend if, you know, maybe have someone who isn't involved. If it's your baby, you're like, oh my gosh, like I really want them to like this. So having someone who's a little bit detached is always good. But there's so many like little things that go into that because you could ask an open-ended question that's like, you know, what do you like about this product? All right, that's leading, right? Because you're already pre- you're already leading them to say that they like something about the product. They might not like anything about it. So you might want to say something that's more open-ended than that, less biased than that. So open-ended questions are great to get people talking, but they don't really reduce the bias in how you interview people. It's definitely something that I go through when I'm interviewing guests because I'm biased by what I'm curious about. And so I'm going to ask the questions that I want to know the answers to because I think it's what the audience wants to know. And so sometimes I have to think about, am I asking the right questions that actually provide value? How do you make sure the feedback users provide is valid and useful? Because you can debias your questions as much as possible, but they can still answer in a way that actually gives you nothing to work with. So there's a few ways you can do that. I mean, one is how specific you're getting. So once you've done these kind of concept interviews, hey, we know people like this product or we know there's something there, right? There's something that's interesting to people. Now we, we have an actual website. We have an actual product. Let's usability test it. So if you're in the usability, let's use that example. I always recommend asking a question in a few different ways. So you could say something really open-ended, like spend a few minutes reviewing this homepage, scroll up and down, tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you don't like about it. Or is there anything confusing about this website? So you keep prompting them to keep giving more. And then the next question is like, tell me three things you noticed about this website. Next question is tell me three things that could have been better about this website. So the more you kind of keep asking, it drills people to kind of give you more. If you just ask like, spend a few minutes on this website, people are gonna be like, okay, it looks good. You know, keep asking in different ways and then you'll get people to kind of open up and say more um, and give like really interesting feedback that way. It's interesting too, because there's also like cultural norms, like some countries, some people are just like, I want to tell everyone that their website's great and it's awesome. As product managers, well, it's nice to hear. You also want to hear, hey, this is annoying. I don't like that. I have to fill in my birth date for signing up for an app. Why would I have to do that, right? Like you want to hear that type of feedback. You have to really be conscious of that and say, okay, if people are kind of on the more shy end or they just don't feel comfortable giving like negative feedback, you can write things like, hey, it's okay. We want to hear what you have to say, your unfiltered thoughts, your unfiltered opinions. This is how we're going to make our product better. So there's ways to prime people to make them feel more comfortable giving that negative or not any negative critical or helpful feedback. Because if you don't get that feedback, then how can you improve? How can you make uh, your product your website, your app better. I definitely agree with that. And it's something that living in Asia has been a problem for me on a personal level and a professional level at times as well, where particularly in China, they're raised to not ask questions because at least in a school setting, asking questions means that like you're stupid, basically. Like if if you have a question, it means the teacher hasn't done their job to tell you everything you need to know. And so if you raise your hand, it's like you're admitting that you don't understand what the teacher is saying. And for an American, that's odd because it's not how we're raised. We're raised not asking a question means you don't understand the information and raising your hand means you want to clarify something and that's a good way to go. And so I can definitely understand how when dealing with different cultures, it could be really difficult. Uh, and so the researcher has to understand the, the market before getting into those questions with them and all that. That can also make your product really great because if you can understand people in these demographics or in that can even countries like different states in the US but handle things differently or different people who are in you know, this demographic for this demographic feel differently about your product, the same product. And then and, you know, you can obviously use that to build for the people that 
you know, your target demographic and say, hey, we want to do things to make it valuable to these people. And you can kind of make sure you're you're getting that really quality feedback. Once you get the feedback, how do you manage it so that it becomes actionable? For example, like if you're doing machine learning, you have to train the data, but before you can train the data, you have to clean the data so that it's trainable. Let's assume you're not working with an AI in this regard, but just a human to human. Is there any sort of cleaning that has to be done? Is there any sorting? Like how do you make it easily understandable and actionable for your team to implement changes? Yeah. And that's a big skill set. being able to take all the, let's say you do 10 interviews, or let's say you have 10 unmoderated tests where participants are going through your website, speaking their thoughts out loud, recording their screen and their voice, and you have five or 10 of those. That's a lot of data to analyze. And when you have something like a survey, you can easily pull out, oh, 85% of people felt this way because a multi-select answer choice is really easy to kind of pull out and generate. With qualitative research, you know, it's not as, as cut and dry. You're also understanding the why. Why do people feel that way. What is it about this that they feel? So that, that's a big skill set and something our software really focuses on because we found that when people were conducting the research, the what they spent the most time was analyzing and synthesizing the research and sharing it internally. And that stuff can get lost really easily. You know, you have someone kind of rambling on saying, oh yeah, okay, this is, I'm confused. You know, so it's not as cut and dry as just like people like it, people didn't like it. There's so much there. So there's a lot, a lot of different ways you can analyze it, especially with video-based feedback. So first you you know, probably pull some transcripts, um, you take some timestamp notes, you go through each of the videos, you can tag themes. So, you know, you can tag things like frustrated, annoyed, like participants, uh, you know, maybe if you have different product lines, you want to tag those and feature suggestions. So there's a lot of kind of like codifying the results and then you can analyze that across participants, pull those together, make some clips. I think clips are really, really important. So if you make little clips of participants struggling to find something that has so much impact. You can share that with stakeholders. You can share that with the development team and say, hey, look, this is not easy. Look look at this participant struggling here. Like we need to make this experience, this user experience better. So you can make those clips. You can create highlight reels. So that that process is the longest process, but it's the most impactful because uh, that's where you're going to take all of this awesome insights and pare it down. And so of course too, like let's say you have 10 interviews, three people say the same thing. That's really, really important. You know, they're saying it and they're saying, oh, I, I don't, I can't find this feature. This is really frustrating that I can't find it. Then you need to change something. So that's important too. How many people said that thing? So there's a lot that goes into the analysis side of things. So if one person out of 10 complains about one thing, is that like, okay, we can forget about this thing? Or how, how do you know beyond just the number of times you hear something be complained about? How do you know what should be acted on? Because let's say someone says something that only one person noticed, maybe it was such a tiny thing that nobody else could see that level of detail. But as a product owner, I would be like, oh, that thing would bother me too. Wow, I, I can't believe I missed that. And I can't believe everyone else missed that. So how do you know what's the right thing to act on once you have the feedback? Qualitative research is more of an art than a science than quantitative research, because there's a lot that goes into that kind of decision, right? Especially as a product manager, as a product owner, you have to make that decision with like other business goals in mind. That goes into like what it is to be a product manager. So, you know, and, and the severity and the priority 
priority that you have internally too. If it's like a something small like a typo and only one person mentioned it and you know it's a two minute fix for your development team, then yeah, it should be acted on, right? Because one, it's going to take two seconds to fix and two, it doesn't look professional to have a typo and three, it's an easy fix. Even though one person mentioned it, why have a typo on your website kind of thing? But then there's also other things where it's like a participant mentioned something that's a feature that's really crazy and you know it's going to take so long to build. Could be high value, but it's just going to take so long to build and really complex. Uh, It doesn't going to yield that much return. Then yeah, then you might say, you know what, this is really good feature suggestion. Let's tag it. Let's uh, save it for later as we kind of mature as a product. And then, you know, maybe we'll come back to it. So there's so much in between where you have to just say that's something we can focus on now or that's going to be something that we focus on later. Uh, but the key that especially we really have people focus on is codifying those results because you lose it. If you do a bunch of interviews and participants say something really interesting and you're like, oh, that's so cool and like such a good suggestion. We just can't do it now. We have too many initiatives going on, but you don't want to lose that, right? And so it's really important to codify that, have a repository for your research. So when you come up with a brainstorming session a year from now, three months from now, and everyone's like, what should we build next? You can say, hey, wait, hold on. Participants mentioned this really cool feature. Do you want to explore this? So that's a big part of it too, is keeping all of your research in a place so that when you're ready to kind of take some of that feedback and implement it. So one of the ideas that I had in this regard is we're using ProdPad to manage our product and we want to use Canny as well. So I guess what the goal would be is we can do this UX research come up with a backlog of ideas, leave it on ProdPad until we're ready, and then put it on Kenny and have the community vote on which one of those initiatives they think is the most important, and then go and build the ones that are the most popular. One of the challenges I do feel like with the upvoting is that you sometimes don't understand the why. Someone might get some user feedback, oh, you know, I would love this feature, but what, why, why do you want it? What about it do you like? What value is it gonna give to you? Um, so one thing I always recommend if you do have those upvoting systems, take that data, which is amazing data, and then see what are the top five things. Okay, now let's look at those things. Let's actually interview people and talk to them. What would you do with this feature? How would you use it? Um, what value would you get from it? And make sure that you're really understanding the full totality of that feature. Because sometimes it could be like, oh, someone just said, oh yeah, that would be nice, right? There's a difference between, oh, that would be nice. And hey, I would promote this to every single person I know. This would be a game-changing feature for your team. And then with the qualitative research, you can understand that difference between, oh yeah, yeah, that's something I just suggested. And oh, no, 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 this would change the game for our organization. Because there is a big difference. Um, So yeah, that's how you kind of pair the qualitative and the quantitative research together, which is really great. How do you approach users to kick off this feedback session? And how do you identify what is the right user? So not based on the persona or anything like that, but you may have 10,000 users on your platform. And let's say there's 100 people that you think might be good. But in, in essence, there's only 20 of those people that are actually like the right people to talk to. How do you identify who they are so you know that the conversations you have with them are valid and correct for your team's needs? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's where there's two things to that. One is, like you mentioned, you can use your own users. You can get feedback directly from your user base. There are some challenges with that. One, people might not want to give feedback. You have a lot of like low response rates. It's also awkward to show them maybe designs that haven't been fully flushed out yet. Because we always recommend put designs in front of people as early as possible. So you don't go down a whole path and you know say, oh, no, now we've gone down this path. We realize people don't actually want this. So 
sometimes people can feel uncomfortable with having their current user base looking at, you know, really early stage prototypes and stuff like that. So there are softwares like ours and others that um, do help you recruit your target demographic. And there's a nice thing about that. One is that you can just put stuff in front of people. And you're like, well, one, I can target them specifically. Like, oh, let's say uh, I'm an insurance company and I need people who are currently in the process of buying a car and they need car insurance. So we can target that level of specificity. And then, you know, you don't, you can just say, you know, one, it's faster, right? These people are trained to respond and give feedback and stuff like that. So that's one, you can use a panel, participant panel. There's plenty out there. And the other is, is targeting your group. There's so many different ways you can go about that. A lot of people like to use like HubSpot, their Salesforce, like things like that. If you've tagged customers and, and maybe your, your CRM softwares, that way you can say, okay, this customer, they currently are using this product and they've logged in 27 times in the last month and they've used customer support chats this many times. So it seems like they must be frustrated or something like that because they keep chatting our customer support. And we want to speak to people who you know are struggling with our product right now because we want to improve it. So that's one way you can do it. Um, you can use kind of your CRM data, your customer chat, you know, maybe if you use intercom or other customer chats, that's another way to do it. You can always, you know, ask people to give feedback that way. They jump on an interview with, um, with our team. They want to give feedback. I always recommend compensating people for their time because then they feel it's equal on both sides. It really depends on what your goal is. So like I mentioned, you might want to speak to the power users who love your product because they're the early adopters, or you might want to speak to the people who decided to subscribe and talk to them and say, what was it that made you unsubscribe? Or how can you chat and support so often? Like, what could we have done to you know, limit that and made it easier to you for you to self-serve? Once you kind of decide what your goal is and your initiative is, then you can kind of splice and dice the data and figure out how do we target or how do we find those people from there? Those are all really awesome tips. And I'm definitely going to have my product manager listen to this episode. <laughs> you mentioned something that I want to talk about, which is compensation. I know your platform allows people to just pay cash for people's time. What do you think about offering discounts on your product if they decide to use it? That's always a hard question for me to answer because it depends on your user base. You know, if you have people who, if your product's a graphic t-shirt shop and you say you get your next t-shirt for free and you have these loyalists that love those graphic t-shirts, they're like, sure, I'll jump on, I'll do it. That's great. If you're a company that's like a B2B software and you're like, oh, you get like one month free and they're a person who has no control of the billing, they don't, it really is irrelevant to them and that their company is going to get a month free on their billing, that may just not matter to them because they're like, well, I'm not getting anything from it. It's my boss, you know, his boss's boss is the one or procurement deals with uh, that. So it doesn't really matter to me. So I think it really, really depends on who your user base is. B2C brands, I probably would say that that's more appealing to use. That's just like a generalization, but that's more appealing for the most part, unless you're B2B brand that works with like freelancers or people who are like directly getting that benefit. But it really does range. There's some B2B softwares that people just absolutely love and they're so diehard that they would do it just for free or they would do it because they just altruistically want to give helpful feedback. So it's a bit of a range. I think it's more about knowing your user base and what motivates them. It's also an interesting question too, like what's interesting to them. But yeah, if you can give stuff away, that's always great. Um, you want to make people feel valued um, and make them feel like they you know, actually did help because that's, that is, is so helpful to give that type of feedback. Without that, it's so hard to build really, really awesome product. We haven't gotten to this point yet. 
And so it's something that we've been thinking about how we can get the users to want to take part in not just beta testing, but alpha testing new features. And then, you know, once they went through it, then we would release it to like the beta test group and let them see it and it would be more refined. And then when it's done and give it to like everyone else, how do you incentivize these kinds of people? Because I've heard of people just doing it out of love for the product. Personally, if a a tool that I'm using all the time is like, hey, I have this awesome new feature and you can get first look at it and you can start using it, it's going to save you 20 minutes out of your day. Sure, I'm definitely going to start using it um, and I'll give them some feedback. That's great. So I think if you can show that there's some value to them for doing that, right, they're going to be able to save time. They can save money. They can do something because they're getting access. Um, Of course, if you have people who absolutely love your brand and just want to give feedback because they are happy to see it grow, that's amazing as well. So it's kind of one of those roots back to your user base and what you know what people are interested in and whatnot that being said i think it's always nice if you can give them something um for their time because you know it's always just like a good way to make people really you know happy and say yeah hey this is awesome like i already love this company and they gave me a a free t-shirt and they gave me uh you know an extra compensation like it just kind of creates those really uh, loyal customers but i mean it's really up to you uh, how you kind of want to handle that it sounds to me like someone could do a pretty good job making a career out of testing products and giving feedback if there's compensation from all those companies. We can definitely do that. Um, there's a lot of people looking for feedback, you know, especially and there's other like a parallel industry stuff where it's surveys, right? People taking and answering surveys. There's plenty of people who um, give feedback that way. Some companies don't want people who are like doing it all of the time. They want a person who's not trained, you know, knows exactly how to give tests and give feedback perfectly. Uh, but some companies want those people who are like really trained because they know what to look for and they know, hey, oh wait, red flag, let me alert that team right away. And it's also exciting. I mean, I, I love giving user feedback. I think it's fun and I, as you, especially if you're into it, it's, it's a fun thing to do. To kind of go through someone's website or product and be like, oh wait, this could be better. Or that could be better. Uh, especially if you're not on the responsibility for changing anything. It's nice to be able to just say like, oh, you can improve that and have no consequences of uh, what, what that actually means as a product manager. You know, you're the one who has to act actually implement that and the developers and the designers and the re- researchers have to actually implement that. But yeah, I think it's it's fun to be a tester for sure. And that's something that I'm kind of a natural at. Like whenever I'm talking with people for the podcast, I'll usually go through their website and profiles and see like if there's any little things that I notice that they've missed any typos here and there or problems with bugs. So I was talking to a potential investor. He was like, uh, hey, check out the website. We did some changes to it. And I was like, oh, the button's broken. I was like, well, the button's broken. Like, oh crap, thanks for letting me know. So I love doing that because it helps people go, oh wow, this guy's, you know, he, he cares. Like, you know, he just doesn't want to use me for my time or my knowledge or whatever. Like he's actually giving giving back to me, something like that. So I don't know, it's just something that I I can't turn off. My mom trained me to notice tiny details. And if they're (laughs) off, I do notice these details and I do point them out to people when you know, they don't notice. And oftentimes people don't notice these things. I've seen so many websites or, or applications that people have developed and it feels like the CEO has no idea. Like they're just not looking at the platform or they're not looking at the website or they're not looking at their LinkedIn company page. And so there's always little problems that I notice, but a lot of people don't notice. And so I feel the need to just tell people. It's interesting, you know, as a, as a founder and also as a product manager, you are so ingrained in your products and that's all you see. So you think that everything's obvious to everyone 
else, right? And so, you know, I just remember writing our first website or doing our first product. I was like, oh, how could no one not understand this? You know, meanwhile, I've been living and breathing this for every second of every day. So I'm like, this is so obvious to everyone. That's why it's so, so important to put it in front of users because you have that bias yourself as someone who's so dedicated to this. You're kind of blinded by some stuff that you think are obvious, you think is so obvious. So that's why you have to put it in front of testers because you're like, you do research and you're like, oh, duh, like I should have seen that. But you just get so into it that that's really why it's important to get it in front of people who are seeing it for the first time who've never experienced it. And I always, every time we do research, I, I always think it's so funny. I'm like, no way we're going to have like crazy feedback. Like we, we've scoured this thing. We, you know, we know this. And then we come back and there's like 20 bits of feedback that I'm like, oh my gosh, that should have been so obvious to me. Like it's just because you're so ingrained in it and it becomes an assumption that you make versus, oh, you should have a label here defining what this step is, you know, stuff like that. So that's even more the reason um, to give feedback because it's not that people don't care. It's not that people don't love with their products. It's just that uh, you're so dedicated and so focused on it that it's hard to see what someone who's never seen it before thinks. I'm completely aware that I'm biased about the way my product looks and feels. I also am hopeful that the first iteration of our design makes sense to people, but I'm also aware that there's a high chance that there's going to be a tremendous amount of feedback that goes, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And sometimes it's just little stuff. I've realized it's always the little stuff. And that's, that's the best part about this type of feedback. It's just, I need a header here or label needs to be a little bit more clear, or I need to learn more button here because people just wanted to know a little bit more. So it's not always these big overhauls. It's a lot of the little tweaking, little iterations, little improvements for a relatively low cost. It's so valuable, right? The alternate of not doing research is put something out there. We get in front of people, they struggle to understand it. One of two things, either they contact our customer chat, they get frustrated because sometimes they can't figure out what they're looking for. And then maybe they churn or they just don't contact customer chat, which is worse, right? And then they just turn on their own and say, oh, I give up, it's too frustrating. Meanwhile, all that could have been is like one little tweak of a, a learn more button, right? And then a help center article or something like that. That could have just been an easy fix. So my pitch is that the amount of money that you save because just doing a little bit of research and getting that feedback versus the unintended consequences of so much downstream. And then, you know, obviously the development time and the product manager's time and all that. But yeah, I think it's, I think the best part about it is it's a lot of little tweaks, it's a lot of little iterations and improvements. And no one's user research is perfect. I always say that like everyone always has something to improve to make better. Uh, my team can definitely vouch for the fact that I've found mistakes and tried to change them. And they're like, we no, we have to finish the product. Just we can wait that that can wait. It can happen later. I'm like, but no. And they're like, you got to wait. We have to finish this, you know, release. We have to finish these features so that we can launch. But as you say, yeah, I'm, I know that there's going to be a huge list of things down the line where it's like, oh, you're missing a tooltip here or, oh, the shadow on this pop-up is different from this shadow. So like things that, that require standardization. Sometimes you just miss that stuff in testing and, you know, you can do your best to design it, but sometimes the developers aren't a hundred percent on exactly what you told them to do. And the testers may not catch those things. And it's not until you start to use it or people start to use it, they go, Hey, like, why is the shadow different here? Maybe they don't notice that, but you know, my, my concept of these kinds of problems are standardization issues as well. Yeah. And and I think with the standardization, it's always funny because, you know, we're very much a product-led growth company. So as a founder, that's what I spend all my time, you know, obsessing over. I get so annoyed when one shadow is, or this button's different than this button. The user does not 
most of the time really care to be honest like we've put it in front of so many people and they're like oh yeah I didn't really notice that but they do notice when they can't figure out when they got frustrated it's hard to balance that right because if you're obsessive about your product that's where you like care about those things but that's why I always try and say as much as you can put yourself in the user's perspective like what's actually frustrating to them you know a button color a this color yes those things can improve experience there's a whole industry around a b testing what should be tweaking and perfect Um, but as a startup stage most of the time there's going to be inconsistencies but having that bad user experience where people just can't get through the sign up flow or they can't start to launch something or start then you're going to lose them and that's obviously more important um, than that and so that's also another thing is what stage of a company you're at you've been around for 15 years the tweaking and the perfection and the a b testing can be that's the most important thing and, and especially if you have, that, you have that scale that tweak and those changes you know obviously they always give the example of google changing their blue button 47 times variation a week or something like that but it obviously makes an impact but as a startup is you know that sort of thing your biggest impact is people like not being able to figure out what what you do what you're about how it works kind of thing so is there something i haven't asked you yet that you wish i'd ask or something that you'd like to add upon one thing i always see is a lot of startups resistant to getting user feedback customer feedback even though people preach it all time like get user feedback put it in front of users and i think it's always been you know oh that's why don't they want to get user feedback I always want to say it's hard it's really hard to put yourself out there and put it in front of people and it's scary to watch those recordings it's scary to be like oh my gosh we really like slaved away on this just really worked ourselves on this and now people hate it i think it's like a muscle you got to practice it you got to just say you know what we're committing to it we know the value of it and it's okay that people aren't going to like things we want people to not like things it's worse that it's going to be live and people don't like it versus it's, you know, in a prototyping phase and people don't like it, then you have time to change it. Then you have time to make, you know, those tweaks. So I kind of, as someone, I always like to kind of say, you know what, I know it's scary to get that type of feedback, especially as someone who cares a lot, uh, but it's okay. You know, the more you do it, the more you get the feedback, the less scary it becomes because you're like, this is just part of our process. We know we're going to get some valid constructive feedback. So as much as you can kind of just say, you know, we got to do it and build it into the part of the software for development life cycle. All right, great. So how can people follow up with you? Check our website, playbookux.com. If you liked this episode, definitely reach out to Lindsay. Her website is playbookux.com. I'll also have a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes. So don't forget that entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. So take care of yourself every day. And don't forget to talk to your users about their experience with your platform. If you want to have a platform that continues to grow and make money so that your shareholders don't fire you. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. 